0: Welcome to this week's episode of Flight Suit Friday. We're still coming at you live from Ahar's, our campfire sessions. And, well, I guess not live, but it's live for me and Sam. We're here. We're here. How's it going? Uh, in the hotel conference room with our suite set up. Today we're going to be talking about the Canadian Royal Air Force. And it's a pretty exciting show. And a little weather report for Astoria. It's beautiful, special VFR, cloudy and rainy. Another 40 degree day with rain. Great day to fly, great day to uh, have a beer and have a chat. Sam, who do we have today? Uh,
1: So we're talking to Lieutenant Commander Amanda Harris. Uh, I had the pleasure of serving with Amanda in San Francisco. And uh, yeah, she's up in Comox right now uh, working, uh, I think it's the Royal Canadian Air Force 442 Transport and Rescue Squadron. Uh, Amanda, you on the line? I'm here. All right, welcome. How you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Uh, I'm on duty today and get to hang out at home while I'm on duty on the weekend.
1: So rough life. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Just call. It, what's your? Uh, how long does it take uh, to get in? And like, do you have a 30-minute launch window there?
2: Or? So it takes me about seven minutes to get to work. It's a pretty uh, small town. But uh, on the weekends, we actually are on two-hour response posture, so the weekends and evenings. So the only time we're on 30-minute is from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday to Friday.
1: Wow. That's different than us. Wow. was Did that take a little while to get used to?
2: Yeah, it's definitely a bit different, um, but it's nice. I get to sleep in my own bed most nights, so that's yeah. pretty handy.
1: Well, uh, rolling back... Uh Can you tell us a little bit about your Coast Guard career thus far and uh, how you got to where you are?
2: Yeah, I actually grew up with my dad being a Coast Guard pilot, so that's how I was exposed to the Coast Guard, and I went to college with no intention of joining the Coast Guard and worked as a civil engineer for a couple of years. I wasn't liking it very much, so I went to OCS straight to flight school. I spent four and a half years in Atlantic City four years in San Francisco and then I was selected for the RCF exchange and I've been in Comox now for almost two years.
0: That's awesome. Where is Comox? Yeah. Where are you?
2: Comox is about halfway up Vancouver Island, uh, on the East side of the Island. And it's about a three hour drive North of Victoria.
1: Okay. So British Columbia,
2: British Columbia. And the weather is like Seattle, not like the Arctic.
1: Ah, well that's nice. Yeah. There you go. That's great. Um, yeah. What, uh, what is your job there?
2: So uh, my flying job, I just upgraded to aircraft commander in December. I've been flying the Cormorant for almost two years now. It started in April of 2019. And my ground job is the Cormorant flight commander, which is a squadron executive position, sort of equivalent with a XO or OPSO job. And I'm in charge of all of the Cormorant pilots and flight engineers their training, professional development, uh, make sure we can hold our schedule for star standby, uh, and a lot of other uh, random uh, jobs that come along with that. So, it's kind of a combo of ops and EXO.
0: So they really just
1: put to you to work, complete.
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. You, know, you don't go it up there. It was definitely be a full-on fire hose <laughs> for yeah. the first
3: couple of years.
0: Hey, can I just be a line pilot up here and just yeah. do my own thing? <laughs> Dang, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, it's funny because uh, here promotion is a big deal and I promoted to lieutenant commander about six months after I got here and that's considered an executive level position here. So they made sure they found a job that was equivalent to my rank, which I kind of wish I could go back and pretend to be a lieutenant for a while.
0: Just don't uh, tell them. Just take oh, the pay and that's it. Uh, so uh,
1: obviously you're 65 pilot. uh and now you're flying the Cormorant. Uh, describe that helicopter for us uh, and for our listeners. It's like eight times the size. Yeah. Right? What What is it like?
2: <laughs> Basically, uh, so it's about three times the size of the sixty-five. It has three engines, each of them are around two thousand shaft horsepower. The max weight for takeoff is a little over thirty-two thousand pounds. Um, wow. And rotor the rotor diameter is sixty-one feet. It's Enormous. So, some big things that uh, were changes for me was just the hover picture because I'm sitting almost seven feet off the ground, uh, so my eye level change is really different. Yeah. Uh, the downwash is incredible. So, kind of having to adjust hover uh, altitudes, and then the flight engineer voice station is 13 feet from my seat, so the difference on where the StarTech is. Uh, in relation to where we're hoisting is a lot different. So I kind of had to adjust, uh, you know, where the helicopter is in relation to where we're hoisting and what I'm looking at. It's always further forward than I think it needs to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's significant. That's that's a big distance. Um, yeah. What, what uh, training did you have to go through? Yeah, what's to, that upgrade
0: process look yeah. like?
2: So the uh, transition course, which they call the OTS here, Operational Training Flight, is actually in Comox. So, I got here in March of 2019. Uh, the first week I was here, I had to go do the Dunker, which is actually in Halifax. So, about four days after I showed up here, I flew to Halifax to do the Dunker, which was pretty cool. It's a civilian contracted company and they have a whole wait pool set up and they turn the lights out and uh, make it kind of stormy and run through a bunch of scenarios. Mm-hmm. So, I did that. Came back, had a couple of weeks to get unpacked in my house. And April 1st, I started the transition course. It's four months long. Uh, basic couple of weeks of learning systems uh, and about all about the aircraft. And then he starts flying phases here. They do land search and rescue as well as maritime. So a big focus was doing land hoist and confined area landings, which is different than anything I've ever done in the coast guard. And mm-hmm. there's very little emphasis on boat hoisting. So it was really a big shift uh, in learning for me, uh, just trying to fit this humongous helicopter down into, you know, small riverbeds and, Openings in the trees and learning to do night hoisting using trees as my reference uh, and different different things like that versus doing all of maritime search and rescue. Yeah. Like and that. as part of that course, um, our simulator is actually at Benson Air Force Base in the UK, which is just south of Oxford. So we spent two weeks in the UK visiting you know different pubs and also going to the simulator. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh,
1: Man, you really got to—you got a lot of travel associated with this job. That's cool.
2: Yeah, it was a pretty uh, fun trip. Uh, when you go over there, it's only once in a day, so we had a lot of time to tour around and check out different parts of the UK while we were there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know I had talked to you uh, in the past about it, and you said that uh, the pedals were a little bit uh, interesting to figure out in that helicopter. Can you explain uh, yeah. what, what that was all about again?
2: So it's kind of similar to the 65, where if you're less than 60 knots. It does heading hold and when you're above sixty knots, it does turn coordination. But the pedals are a lot more sensitive. So if you're flowing through sixty knots and you put your feet on the pedals to start doing your own turn coordination, a lot of times you get a bit of a ratchet in the pedals, or if you don't put your feet down evenly on the the autopilot release on the pedals, it kind of swings a bit funky and I just had a hell of a time getting used to that. Like the pedal inputs for me in the 65 were a bit smoother and easier to uh, deal with. But mm-hmm. heading hold works really well in this aircraft. So when you're hovering, you basically are feet off the pedals entirely. And that's a bit different than, than what I'm used to as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a lot different. So obviously, it sounds like you probably have done some cool inland SAR cases. Uh, you, got any, you got any good, good s- Yeah. Any good stories?
2: Yeah, I definitely have a few. Uh, I finished my OTF in July, and in in August I got a huge case, uh, my very first search and rescue case here, and we got launched on a float plane that crashed um, about an hour and a half north of here on this island called Addenbrook Island off the west coast of British Columbia, Mm -hmm. and it was uh, 11 passengers on board. And we didn't know the state really of any of the passengers, but they crashed into the side of a hill on a on this island. So we headed up there and we use the Joint Rescue Coordination Center Victoria and they do all of our SAR launches here. It's a combination of the Air Force and the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard here is a civilian agency. Right. So it's a little bit different. Uh, they had actually stopped uh, a ferry en route, and tried to borrow a um, uh, medical personnel off the ferry. There was a small Coast Guard lighthouse on this island uh, that one of the passengers managed to accidentally find himself at, which is how they were notified of the, the accident. And 442 has 6 wing search and rescue as well, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we headed up there with a Buffalo fixed-wing aircraft, got on scene, found the wreckage of this aircraft. We had an extra tech with us, so our normal crew is two techs one flight engineer, and two pilots. So we've crew of five, and we grabbed an extra tech so we had six people on board.
1: Are they? Is just real quick as a SARTEC similar to our rescue swimmer? What what's their role?
2: They are, except for they are full paramedics. Um, they're parachute qualified, so they're a little bit closer to like the U.S. Air Force Okay, Okay, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and they go between both the fixed wing and the rotary wing uh, crews here God.
0: in Colmox. Okay. They or, for, most of them are qualified or,
2: on both aircraft.
0: Are they trained for maritime rescue stuff also, or are they mostly inland?
2: They are trained for both. Uh, I would say that they're not as comfortable in the water as our rescue swimmers, but we do do boat hoisting and uh, you know hoist to the water and that type of uh, maritime uh, rescue as well.
1: Okay. Uh, back to the case. Yeah. So we're headed out.
2: Back to the case. <laughs> Uh, so got up to this island, found the wreckage, we uh, were able to put our star techs in uh, maybe a kilometer from where the actual wreckage was. We didn't want to put them right on top just because we didn't know how fragile the wreckage was and we can it around pretty good with the cormorant.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And mm-hmm. they hiked into where the wreck was. There was four deceased people and five severely injured and trapped uh, still in the aircraft. Uh, we decided to let them have some time to get everyone out and ready to hoist, and we flew to Port Hardy, which is on the very north uh, tip of Vancouver Island, for fuel. While we were refueling, the Buffalo was able to jump two of their Startex to the water, so they did a pair jump uh, to to the water where a small Coast Guard boat picked them up, and. They were Close. able to use one of the Coast Guard helicopters that doesn't have a hoist to insert them a couple kilometers from the wreckage, and they hiked in to assist. So we had five SARTECs on the ground trying to extricate the five survivors of this wreckage.
3: Wow. And came wow.
2: back and spent about an hour doing 11 hoists getting all of the injured personnel and the StarTex back on board the aircraft.
1: Wow. That's incredible. And
2: then yeah, it was pretty crazy for my first experience. You know, one we had so many people on board the aircraft, uh, severe injuries, um, really interesting coordination between BC Ferries, Canadian Coast Guard, and both like the fixed and rotary wing assets from 442. Mm-hmm. So it was a really good introduction to all of the SAR capabilities that uh, the Air Force has up here.
0: They yeah, pretty much hit everything that they had to throw at it all in one night.
2: Yeah, all in one night. And uh, so that was. Literally, like a couple weeks after I got qualified, and I was like, "Wow, well, Canada's going to be an
0: interesting tour." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is this what every duty's like? Holy cow! <laughs> That's awesome, though. Wow how uh, yeah. how
1: many how many pilots are there at the unit?
2: Uh, we have about fourteen pilots.
1: Okay, so you're standing duty what like three four times a month?
2: Oh, way more than that because we don't stand full twenty four hour shifts. Oh, okay, um, I probably stand. 14 shifts a month or so. Uh, so it kind of works out to the same number of work days. So we still get the same number of days off a month. And I work two weekends a month usually on call.
1: Okay. That's a that's a yeah. decent chunk of work to do up there.
2: Um, yeah, it's definitely busy, but we have a standby cruise during the day. So from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., which of that time frame, only 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. You're at work flying or doing a training. Uh, that's like our standby and we call it Flash, which is the overnight crew, and the overnight crew starts at four PM and they're on till six AM the next morning essentially.
1: Okay. Got it.
2: Yeah, so we break the shifts up into two two shifts a day, which is why there's more over the course of the month.
1: So yeah, uh, rolling back a little bit, how did what was the uh process to get that job? Because um, obviously uh I'm assuming it's it's pretty competitive to get there just like it would be to go to Hats.
2: Yeah, I um It's a separate application process. So I put it on my dream sheet uh, at the normal due date time at the end of August. It was my number one pick. And you also had to submit a letter of endorsement from your CO. Uh, So my CO wrote me a letter of endorsement, which I also submitted to the detailers. And then at some point in the fall, the detailers sat down and went through everyone's record and letters of recommendation for those who had applied for the job. And I don't know how many people applied to come up here. And selected uh, me out of that group to come. And uh, I think a lot of it had to do with my experience and my background, which was yeah, I've flown both East and West Coast. I've done Rotary Wing Air Intercepts. I'd been to HAPS. I'd been to AHARs. So I had a pretty, like, wide variety of training in my background, which I think helps when you come into an environment like this because everything is different. And everything is – a lot of it is just close enough to how we do things in the Coast Guard. It's a little bit confusing or I get tripped up sometimes,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, but then a lot of it is really different and you kind of have to be able to forget some of the things you've learned and hold on to the important stuff and then pivot and relearn a new system very quickly. So I think having a lot of tools in my background to, to draw on really helps.
0: That's cool and uh, did you have to get language training to head up there? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I didn't, but uh, French is the second official language up here, and I'm hoping to take a five week language course uh, for French
3: nice.
1: next
2: year. Otherwise, it's just been on the fly training of all of the different uh, Canadian slang terms.
1: Do you uh, say a a lot now? I'm guessing, or
0: call people a hoser? I say it all
2: the time. <laughs> Do you
0: really? Oh and no, I'm, you're gonna yeah. be the worst.
2: It's, I know it's so bad. It's like it's just such a great, a great phrase, you know rolls off the tongue very easily at the end
1: of a sentence yeah i mean it's a great word
2: a and my other favorite one is giver
1: what's giver? that mean
2: giver like uh go do it giver
1: you oh giver hell
2: yeah kind of oh. like that people just say it as like you know just this phrase all by itself giver
0: that's awesome that's wild yeah uh you mentioned that and a double
2: it, double hair is not the same as it is in california
0: oh uh, okay uh, good to know <laughs> that is good to know yeah Uh, You mentioned that it was a lot of training and stuff to had a lot of Coast Guard training, but they do things a lot differently as well. Uh, I'd like to get into a little bit of MOI and how is that different than your experience in the Coast Guard? Do they approach training or methods of instruction a little bit differently up there?
2: Some of the things I've noticed is uh, they have a little bit more robust training and standards course for uh, pilots to become instructors. Uh, they they do that at the ATC level, and it's a two-week-long course. And I do think that that's pretty helpful for everyone becoming instructors. In terms of methods of instruction, I find that there's a lot of parallels with the U.S. Coast Guard and how they train pilots here. There's a really big emphasis on CRM and crew management uh, as you're moving towards aircraft commander. One of the things that I find really interesting on how they run their program is it's all about uh, acting aircraft commander and doing um, star missions and star mission scenarios as you're getting ready for your upgrade and because the quorum run is such a large aircraft they can put uh, a first officer up front with another first officer and put the instructor in the jump seat and the instructor will kind of act as the joint rescue coordination center uh, or like a sector for coast guard and run them through a SAR case and give them emergencies and it kind of has a more real world feel to it and i appreciated that about the upgrade. And then the aircraft commander check ride is a multi-day check ride here where you go and take the aircraft away from home station and you run through three, four different star scenarios and you operate the aircraft away from home base.
0: Wow. They really put you through the ringer there. Yeah. That's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, they do. And I think the reasoning behind it is our AOR is enormous here. Um, We cover all the way up to the Arctic and some cases I've transited eight hours to get to a star case here. And then spent two hours prosecuting the medevac, and, and then had to transit back. And a lot of those you'll end up staying overnight somewhere. So having some area familiarity outside of our local area is really important, just because our AOR is so big.
1: Right. Do you cover like all of British Columbia, out of Comox, or something?
2: All of British Columbia, part of Alberta, uh, Yukon territories, Wow. and a couple hundred miles off off the coast. <laughs>
1: dang uh, That's huge. Y- you mentioned such a long case Did, what's their the flight time limits do they have similar to us or is it completely different
2: it's completely different it's 12 hours of flight time extendable up to 15 uh, and I have used that on a case before and flown 12 hours
1: oh my goodness how'd you feel <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds terrible
2: <laughs> I was exhausted <laughs>
0: yeah sleeping for yeah. days after that one <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, I was
1: exhausted,
2: yeah. And uh, on that case, we flew inland uh, to Prince George, which is between the Coastal Mountain Range and the Rockies in British Columbia. And uh, the Cormac has a really good uh, anti-icing system. So we have rotor de-ice, tail rotor de-ice, windscreen, inlet de-icing, uh, engine intake de-icing. So it's a very good system, and you can operate in moderate icing with it, which is also very different for me coming from the 65 we were terrified of anything that was like an icing condition. Right.
3: Uh, right. But
2: on that case, you know, we flew four and a half hours to get to Prince George refueled, flew another hour and a half to pick up the patient, flew them back to Prince George and then flew back to Comox. And it's now three o'clock in the morning and we're picking up ice and shooting an instrument approach. And I was like, well, this is a great end to my day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Holy cow. So. Jeez, I can't imagine that. That's wild. Yeah. Man, that's, that's really
1: cool. So uh, mountain flying, I'm assuming, is is pretty prevalent out there. Did they give you any specific training for that?
2: Oh, yeah. So they have a mountain flying course that you're required to go to here before you upgrade to Aircraft Commander, and it is the best course I've ever been to. Wow. It's four weeks long. It's in Penticton, which is in central British Columbia. It's run by a civilian company, uh, so... You get to wear civvies. You get to fly a helicopter in civilian attire for a month.
1: Wow. Uh, it was amazing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. That's so cool. Uh, yeah, and it was neat because I went in the winter time, and there's quite a bit of snow and I was flying a 206 with skids and, you know, learning to land in snow banks and assess different uh, wind conditions and stuff was really cool. And it was an interesting comparison between hats, which I've also gone to. And here, just the way that they teach mountain landings is a bit different. So it's again, really cool to have both pieces of, uh, training in my tool bag.
0: Yeah. That I want to go to that course. Yeah. It sounds pretty wild. Like extreme power management stuff. It was like summer
2: camp for a pilot. It was great.
0: That's awesome.
1: That's really cool. Um, what else you got, Rye? Uh, CRM questions. I
0: was going to hit on CRM a little bit. You mentioned that it's a little bit different, or they put a lot of emphasis on it. Is it that much different uh, than how we train it here? Or, yeah, what are your thoughts on that?
2: We don't go through the same serum tenements that we usually hit in our annual training in the Coast Guard, but the overall principle is the same. And I think because the train we work in is so varied, you know, I've gone offshore and done MetaBacks, I've gone up in the mountains and done hyper rescues. Uh, I've even more frequent than in the Coast Guard that you're confronted with a case that you've never seen before in an area you've never operated. So using CRM and pulling all of your resources is really important. Our star techs do go through a lot of training. They go to avalanche courses. They know how to backcountry ski. They've done ropes courses. Uh, they are dive qualified. They're jump qualified. So you have a lot of knowledge on the crew and being able to pull all that to make decisions is definitely very important. And the other part about operating here in BC is a lot of times you're out in the middle of nowhere all by yourself. So the oversight from the Air Force is not the same. So you really are very reliant on your crew to operate in environments that you've never seen before with very little support.
0: Yeah. That's wild. Does that change any of the risk management decisions? Obviously it seems like you you guys train pretty hard and you're pretty well prepared for these things, but what about the risk management decisions while you're out there and alone as a crew?
2: So we still have like a risk management matrix that we go through, but the launch authority is a bit different here. So uh, RCC will call the aircraft commander and brief them on the case. And the aircraft commander basically has the decision to accept or not accept the case. Uh, If they assess that they're going to accept the case, but there is a risk Factor that's pushing them into the yellow range then they're supposed to call their next person at the chain of command which is me as the flight commander mm-hmm. uh and discuss the case and i can give them the yes this makes sense no it doesn't make sense or let's elevate this to the co uh if it pushes them into the red for whatever reason and there's you know, different things that do that extended crew day uh, icing condition, different types of icing conditions, distance offshore, et cetera, then they call directly to the CO and have that discussion with her and assess the risk and if they can go or not go or if they should turn down the case. So the ops officer doesn't really get involved in this uh, discussion at all. So that is a bit different. And, you know, with Medivac, I have the ability as the aircraft commander to turn down the case mm-hmm. uh, if, if I deem it's not going to be feasible for us to do.
1: Have you had any of those happen to you yet?
2: Uh, nope, I had my first two cases last weekend, uh, and one of them was an injured hiker, and just due to the clouds in the area, we weren't able to get in. They were able to hike them out in, not, in about 45 minutes, so I didn't feel too bad about it. Yeah. And then the other one was a uh, medevac off the west coast, and it was pretty straightforward. It was a small community, isolated community on the west coast of the island, uh, and we just went over the mountains in the central part of the island at 10,000 feet and were able to get out of the clouds there, pick them up the patient, and bring it back here to Comox.
1: What's the uh, highest hover that you've done so far out there? (laughs)
2: Um, Highest hover. That's a hard one to answer. We go out and do mountain approaches pretty frequently, and I've landed up around 7,000 feet. So, I mean, I'm hovering at that altitude in preparation for landing. But I haven't had too many mountain cases where I have to hover uh, off the side of a peak. We've had a few in the squadron that are right around that 7,000-foot mark. Um, mm-hmm. and even though the Cormorant has three engines, you still have some power limitations uh, up at 7,000 feet, especially if it's hot and humid.
0: It's pretty high for a helicopter to, to handle.
2: Definitely. Yeah. One of the really nice things we have is the Buffalo, which is the six wing aircraft. They can drop flares and basically turn like night into day. So when you're doing an offshore uh, hoist or up in the mountains with very little light or references, they can come in and drop flares and they can even drop them uh, IFR so if there's clouds above you and they're circling you know at 10 or 12,000 feet they can drop them and they'll still like light up uh, through the clouds
1: that's really useful that's super cool yeah that's
0: really cool um, yeah it's really things, really like, helpful yeah. the 30s and stuff you know Yeah, that's hey very- guys can you just drop a bunch of flares cause I'm pointed offshore and don't feel like looking at nothing tonight
1: yeah I mean I know when i when <laughs> Being in San Francisco,
0: man, we always had that option to yeah. have the
1: Air Force uh, C-130s drop flares. I never did it, but that's got to be a, a great tool for the tool bag.
2: Yeah, it's super handy. Uh, we've used them a few times on mountain cases here recently, and I used them on an offshore case uh, when we had a medevac off a tanker on the west coast, and it was like 20-foot seas and super dark and stormy, and it was really nice having uh, having the buffalo there with flares.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounds like a really robust... SAR response program that they have up there. And I know we compare it to the Coast Guard and, and what we have at our fingertips, and we have a pretty robust program as well in the in the U.S., but just all of the assets, like that Casey, you explained, that's pretty wild how much that you guys can throw at a case.
2: Yeah, it's really a, an interesting um, place to, to work and to operate in. You know, the, the Air Force is actually pretty small. It's smaller than the, the Coast Guard by quite a bit. I think the entire Canadian Armed Forces is smaller than the Coast Guard. Uh, but, you know, having a fixed wing asset right here at the same squadron, and I know all of those pilots, you know, I can always call them and say, hey, like, what do you think about this case? Or can you assist with this? And that part of it is really nice. I think there's, especially with the medevac cases and the inland rescue, there's a little bit less pressure to get off the ground immediately, especially when we're in that two hour response posture. And it's definitely encouraged that you call a fellow pilot who maybe has operated in that area before and ask them some questions and get their opinion on how they would, you know, get into a certain location. And I've kind of found that to be really helpful.
1: Yeah. Um, I would, that would be fantastic to have that, that much uh, experience surrounding you and, and those options. Um, Amanda, what's life like? up there. What's there to do? What do you do on your off time?
2: Oh man, this is like an outdoor lover's paradise. Um, I am 30 minutes from ski hill Mount Washington. It's not a huge, but it's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, there is Um, provincial park. You can go hiking, backpacking, uh, anything you want to do there. Uh, we're right on the, uh, on the sound here, which is awesome. Cause it's a bit warmer than the ocean. We don't get the fog that Port Angeles does. So in the summer, paddle boarding. There's a bunch of islands you can go camping on. Uh, I picked up mountain biking. I started learning to play hockey this year. Yeah, uh, We have a hockey rink here on bay. You're turning um,
1: into a true Canadian.
2: Oh, I I'm, that's my goal. I'm just going to be Canadian by the time I leave here.
1: Have you worn jeans while you're skiing yet? Because then you're really a Canadian.
2: <laughs> I haven't done that yet, but <laughs> it's tempting.
1: Oh,
0: great. How about your favorite beer out there? Do they oh, have any good a ones? hard
2: one <laughs> To pick, yeah, the, my recent favorite was a Blackberry Fig Sour from Land and Sea Brewing, which is walking distance from my house, and it was made with local raspberries. They're actually giving people beer credit if they brought raspberries in the summer for the beer.
1: Nice. That's That's awesome. pretty cool. Um, yeah,
2: it was great. I mean, I've gotten to be a bit of a gin snob because our Sims in the UK, and they always have really great gin at the pub for gin and tonics, so got a couple of favorite gins these days.
0: That's awesome. So Amanda, before we wrap up, we've got a question that we ask a lot of our guests uh, and it's what piece of advice have you received over the years that's proven to be valuable to you? And it could be advice that you got while trading with with the Canadians or just in general, uh, something that you think would be valuable to pass on to others.
2: I think the best piece of advice I've received or I've kind of learned uh, over the years is just be flexible. I don't think there's any one defined path within the Coast Guard pick jobs that you are going to enjoy so that you will do good at them. And I think if you do well, then other good opportunities are going to come your way. Uh, I found that has like really helped me. You know, I am a person who had Hitron on my list at the same time as I had this on my list. And I actually got this job. And, you know, part of that I think was my openness to take other positions on the coast guard that were less desirable and just be open to the opportunity. Cause I feel like every job I've had has had, some really awesome pluses and if you can focus on those and do well at your job and you'll have a great career and enjoy your time
1: yeah that's great advice yeah that's real good uh when do you transfer when can I slide into that job
2: it'll be on the shopping list this <laughs> summer it's opening in 2022 so Dangerous.
1: you know. okay for all our listeners out there I know <laughs> put, <laughs> get put going on your list uh you got any other <laughs> parting <laughs> parting shots for us uh before we go
2: you know, I, as soon as the borders are open, I welcome anyone to come up and visit. It's an awesome spot, and I do miss my Coast Guard friends. Uh, it's not the worst place to be trapped during COVID because there's a ton of stuff to do right here in the local area, but, you know, I wish I could share it with more people. So if the border's open, come visit.
1: There you have it, folks. There it is. There's your trip to Canada. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, super insightful. Uh, get, a, get an idea of what it's like to go out and serve with another uh, – Nations, uh, Air Force, Coast Guard, whatever that may be. Thanks again, Amanda.
2: No problem, Sam.
1: All right. <laughs> Best ending there is. <laughs> really is.
3: Oh. <laughs> uh.